0: Alright, well this morning, uh, we're going to spend a little time ministering about the divine nature. So if you guys recall, um, a few months ago, actually I don't even know how long ago it was, I did a series on the book of 1 uh, uh, Peter, and now we're going to continue on in 2 Peter. So over the next three Sundays, this Sunday and two more, we're going to be looking into the, the book of 2 Peter. In this first chapter in the book of 2 Peter, uh, he deals with the d- divine nature. You see, our nature, or who we are, is fundamental to living a successful and victorious Christian life. You can't be a successful Christian if you're still stuck in your old nature, if you're still stuck in that old person that you were, if you haven't been changed and given this divine nature, this godly nature inside of you, then you'll never be victorious because nothing has changed. Because that was actually the problem with the law, is they didn't have a new nature. They were just giving a a set of rules that they had to live up to. But all it did was point out their failure because they could never meet those expectations. Because their nature had not been changed. They were still the same person that they were broken and, and corrupted by the loss of their flesh. As their, as their sin, as their, their flesh wanted to sin, they were continuing to do those things even if they didn't want to. Because they were still the same on the inside. The truth is that we're born broken. We're born into slavery to sin. And the only way that that can be rectified is if we accept Jesus Christ into our hearts and we're giving a new spirit inside of us, a new nature inside of us, then finally we're able to live. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says that that we are made brand new, that we are a new creation in Christ. We've been made a brand new creation. We're given a new nature. But the great thing is it's it's not just any old nature off the shelf. You know, God just didn't pick out a, a... you know, this one looks pretty good. It doesn't look like it has any flaws. And, you know, it wasn't just like a a remake or made brand new, but he actually gave us his very own nature. And that's what Peter's going to be speaking about for most of this chapter is the divine nature inside of this. And because of this, because we have God's very own nature inside of us, we're actually of the nature of God that we can finally live a sinless life. We can live holy. We can live godly. And it's the only time we've been able to do so. Because without this brand new nature we're left to live a corrupted life engaging in the lust of our flesh, engaging our lives as slaves to sin because we're born into bondage to sin. And as, as a slave to sin, unfortunately, just like when you're a slave to anything, it's what tells you what's to do. If you're, if you're a slave to something, then it tells you where you're going, what you're doing, how you're going to be interacting. But I thank God that because of this divine nature, we're no longer in the slavery to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. Amen. So let's look at the first scripture here. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 1-3 says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence." I always like that when the, the apostles start off, usually, they always refer to themselves as, as bond servants or bond slaves of the Lord. One thing that I notice about the lives of all the great apostles is that they were all bond servants to God. They were voluntary slaves in essence. And I think we've talked about this before that to become a bondservant when when they were in slavery, if they wanted to stay with their master, they felt like they were treated well, they felt like they they loved their masters, they would become a bondservant. They would voluntarily stay and continue to serve their masters at the time. And that's exactly what's happening in the lives of the apostles. They're saying that we are bondservants of the Lord. He's not forcing us to do these things, but we choose to stay and serve the Lord with everything that we have. And I really believe that if we want to have the same impact in this world, if we want to have the same impact that the apostles did in our community, and our workplaces, then we need to be in the same mind as them as well. We need to be bondservants to the Lord. We need to say, you know what? My life is not my own, but it's yours. And the truth is, our lives were bought with a price. Hey, guys. So this means that sometimes that we're going to be doing things even when it seems to be a little uncomfortable. You know, when we were at that meeting on, on Wednesday night, I really felt God telling me to go and, and, and speak to, to, to George and Anita. And uh, what was said doesn't really matter, but the fact is that God was speaking to me and he said, you know what, I have a word for them and, and, and you need to go tell them. And I want you to know that even as the pastor, my first thought is, Is this God? Oh, no. What if I go over there and it's totally out of place? What if I go over there and and they're like, What are you talking about? You know, being a bond sermon to God is doing stuff that sometimes feels uncomfortable. Or when you're sitting at a Circle K and you're going up to the cashier and you feel God telling, Why don't you minister to them? Tell them that God loves them. Sometimes that's uncomfortable. And our first thought is, is, Woe is me. What if they laugh at me? What if they shun me? What if they make fun of me? What if somebody else sees me doing this? But the truth is, being a bond servant to the Lord is doing stuff when he asks, even when it is uncomfortable. It also means that we need to be sharing the gospel and living a holy life. It means going to, to our, our meetings, going to church and our different meetings and ministering when sometimes all we want to do is go home. Sometimes we're just too tired. Being a bondservant to the Lord means that our life is his and is no longer our own. And I think if we want to be impactful in this city, we need to resolve just like the apostles to live that kind of life. Next, Paul, Peter begins to single out his audience. He says, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours. See, and I love this because we begin to recognize that he's not just talking to the people he wrote this letter to but in fact we are a people that have received the same kind of faith as this and what is this faith in hebrews 10:39 it says but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul what this faith is talking about is faith in jesus christ faith in the son of god who came down and paid the price for our sins and next he points out that he's ministering from righteousness because Christ has made his righteousness and his, his authority, his ability to, to preach this message comes from God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I always love the hearts of all the apostles when they begin to speak as well because the next thing, the first thing they always do in their letters is they begin to, to Speak blessing over the lives of those they're speaking to. First and foremost, they're concerned with the people of God that they're ministering to. And he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He wanted grace and peace for the people that he was writing to. And he also wanted him to understand, though, that the only way that you can have this grace, this peace, is from knowledge of Jesus. He says, Right here. The grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord see the truth is that when you learn who God really is you will receive peace how many people know that there's, there's a peace in knowing that God is actually a God of love that he actually loves you that he actually cares for you and he's not out to get you he's not waiting for you to mess up he's not waiting for you to screw up so he can hit you with a, a big stick across your knees there's peace in knowing that We also begin to recognize the greatness of the grace that we have received. When we spend time in the Word, our knowledge of Him has, has increased. We realize that the, the greatness of the quality of the grace that He's given and also the, the quantity of the grace He's given when our knowledge of Him increases. We begin to realize just who we were. As we begin to read the Word, we, we understand that, that we were completely lost before. And then we begin to take a look at our life we, and we begin to see... You know, if you take a good, hard look at the life of who you were, you begin to think, "Why am I even worthy? Am I? What is the deal with this?" And you recognize, when you learn of His love and His grace expressed towards you, and your knowledge of Him, that 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 just increases. That grace and peace in your life increases as we begin to learn who He is. And the only way you can do that is by spending time in His Word. You know, the more I he- I hear people speak of God as I begin to talk to people about God and in my workplace or different places that I go, or you even see it when you watch TV and you see these different ideas of who God is and all these different TV shows, which are really, for the most part, a representation of what society thinks God is. We begin to look at these things. I begin to, to recognize that they're completely oblivious to who God really is. They're receiving no peace and they're receiving no grace because they're afraid of Him. They think that he's some uh, vindictive or indifferent God who's out to get him. They they either think that he's out to get him, or they think he just doesn't care. Or they just think he doesn't exist. And they can receive no peace. They can receive no grace because they have no knowledge of him. But Peter's saying that grace and peace will be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then he goes on to say that... His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and to godliness. See, the truth is that when Jesus came and he died for us, he fixed the very root of the problem that was inside of us. He gave us a brand new life and he freed us from sin and darkness. And we're no longer slaves to sin and we're finally able to live godly lives. In Romans 6.18 it says, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And I love this verse because as you take a look at what really being a slave means, it means that whatever you're a slave to, your master is what controls every single thing that you do. Your master is in charge. When they say jump, you say how high. Basically, that's how it works when you're a slave to something. And when you're a slave to sin, sin rules and reigns in your lives, and it's what dictates and controls everything that you do in your life, and there's nothing that you can do about it. You can't escape because you're a, a slave. So Jesus came and he freed us from that and made us, like here it says in in 6.18, it says, we became slaves. Romans 6.18, we became slaves of righteousness. And what that means is because we're a slave to righteousness, that means that it's what controls what we do. Righteousness is what tells us what to do. And as a result, everything that we do, as long as we recognize that we are slaves of righteousness and free from sin, everything that we do will be dictated by the righteousness that's inside of our lives. You see, without his divine power at work in our lives, his divine power that has granted this everything pertaining to life and godliness, Jesus inside of us has given us the ability to live our life godly. Without this divine power at work in our lives, even our best efforts are but filthy rags. Our best efforts without Jesus are like filthy rags. In England there's a paper factory that makes incredibly fine stationery. And now one day a man was touring the factory and he asked what the stationery was made from. And he was shown a huge pile of old rags in the corner and he was told that the rag content was actually what determined the quality of the paper. They, they recycled these old rags and made paper. And he said the visitor couldn't believe it. He was absolutely amazed that these old, dirty, nasty rags were recycled and to make incredibly fine, high-quality stationery. So said in a few weeks, he received from the company a package of paper with his initials embossed on it, and on the top of the piece were written the words, Dirty Rags Transformed. And that's just like what happens in our lives when when Jesus comes to live inside of us. Those dirty rags, all that stuff that, that were nothing but filthy rags is transformed into something incredible. And the works that we do, we can do for God. We can finally live a godly life. And finally, it says that this is through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his own excellence. See, the truth is that we are called into this life. We're called to be free, not based on anything that we've done, not on our own deeds and accomplishments, but it's a free gift. It's actually His glory, His excellence that calls us into this life. Then in 2 Peter 1.4 it says, For by these, speaking of His glory and His excellence, by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." Like I said, by these these things he's speaking of here, by his own glory and excellence, we are granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. You see, this just goes to show that the promises, the promises of God, his promises, are completely based on his merit, his excellence, his glory, and not on anything that we've done. You know, and this is such an essential thing to the gospel, but the truth is, So many of us have very uh, strong difficulty grasping this most basic thing of the gospel. We have have difficulty getting a revelation of what he's truly saying. See, most of us just can't see how God could give us anything good, because if he knew the things that I did, if he knew the things that I've done, how how could he love me? How could he do these things for me? Or on the flip side, many people can't understand why they don't have to pay for the things that I've done. They, they, want to feel, they, they feel like they have to feel guilty or shameful or they have to somehow make penance for, for some of the things that they've done in their life. And they can't understand how in Christ that's not, that's not uh, the fact, of why that doesn't happen in Him. But the truth is, there was a price to be paid. You just didn't have to pay it. Jesus Christ paid it for you. You see, our entire lives we were taught to work hard and earn our keep. And this is true for every area in our life. Even in, even in Scripture, Paul says if they don't work, they don't eat. And you know in our own lives, if, if you go to work and you slack off and you don't know what needs to be done, you're going to get fired. You're going to lose it all. We were taught in our lives that we have to work hard and earn everything. But this is the one area of our life where that's absolutely not true. And the reason it's not true is because we could never do it. You know, the, the law came to, to show us that we could never live up. It pointed out our failures. So God, in His infinite mercy, He paid the bill for us. And because of that, it's a free gift, and it's a free gift for everyone, no matter how bad they've been. Because the truth is, I think that's one of the big things, too, is, is we categorize sin. You know, we we think that lying is somehow more acceptable to God than murder. But the truth is, sin is sin. It all separates you from God. And it all has the same price to be paid. The wages of sin is death, of all sin. It doesn't say the wages of the sin of murder is death, but the wages of the, the sin of lying is just 12 lashes. Even though that's how we, we model our, our justice, our, our, our courtrooms and stuff, is there's different levels of severity, but to, to God it's sin, and the price has to be paid. And thank God that He paid it for us, because we could never foot that bill ourselves. The only requirement, requirement is that we have to rec- receive it. And that's the one thing that we're all capable of doing. We're capable of receiving a free gift. So what are some of these promises that he's granted us, his precious and magnificent promises? And there's many, but I'm going to give you just a few that I was thinking about as I I was preparing this message. First, one of his promises is health in our bodies. In Isaiah 53, uh, verse 5, I think it says, by his scourging we are healed. This is actually in 1 Peter what he quotes. He says, by his stripes we are healed. That's a promise of God. Freedom is promised by God, freedom from, from sin, freedom from the corruption of this world. In John 8, 36, it says, So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We're given life in Jesus Christ. One of the promises is, is life. Ephesians 2, 4-5 says, But God, being re- rich in mercy because of his great love with that which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace we have been saved. And another great promise of God is that we are children of God. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to him he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There are so many promises of God that are made throughout the scriptures that we could probably spend months of Sundays going through each and every one of them. But the truth is, that they are all granted to us because of His glory and His excellence. And it says, Then, so that we may become partakers of the divine nature. To be a partaker of something is to share in it. You and I, when we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are sharing in the divine nature of God. So to share in that divine nature, what that means is that we are holy. That means that we are pure, that we are undefiled, and we are eternal. Those are all qualities of the nature of God, and we share in that nature. You see, everything in this world behaves based on its nature. An eagle flies because it's in its nature to fly. A cheetah runs because it's in its nature to run. Sinners sin. The lost sin because it's in in their nature to sin. But because we share in the divine nature... We can live holy and pure. We can do this because this is now our nature. This is who we are. His nature is inside of us. We are sharers of the divine nature. So that means that we can live like he lived. We can live pure. We can live holy. And because of this, we escape the corruption that is in this world by lust. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like the people in this world are always lusting after something. They're always looking for something to fill that hole inside them. Some people don't even recognize that there's a hole inside them, but they're always looking for something to fill it. They're reaching out for the next best thing, and they think that maybe if I get drunk enough, that'll, that's going to make me happy. Drinking makes me happy. But they have to keep doing it because it never fills that hole. It never makes them happier. Maybe drugs will make, them make me happy. Maybe drugs will fulfill me finally. But it never does. Maybe they're looking for fulfillment in relationships, They're looking for fulfillment in sex. They're looking for fulfillment in all these different things that ultimately never fulfill them. They have to keep looking for more because they get it and they think they're happy for a moment, but then the next day they recognize that, wait a minute, I'm still not happy. Or maybe they think that if I just get a better job and make a little bit more money, then I'll really be happy. Or if I just had a nicer car or a bigger house, then maybe I would be happy. But the truth is that happiness is a fleeting thing when you're looking for it in this world. The only thing that can truly fill that hole and truly make you happy and give you the peace that you're looking for is Jesus Christ. And I thank God because we have that divine nature, because we've received the Lord Jesus Christ inside of us as our Lord and Savior, that we've escaped this corruption that is a world by lust. That we're we're finally able to have peace. We can finally be fulfilled. It's funny, before I was saved, if you would have told me these things, I would have told you you were crazy. Even though I look at my life and I was doing all these things, I was looking for something to make me happy. And it wasn't finally till I got good and truly saved that I gave my life to the Lord. And I remember it clearly this day. There was a birthday I had coming up. And Michelle asked me, what do you want for your birthday? And for the first time in my life, I went, I don't need anything. And it was an incredible feeling. Now don't get me wrong, there's still stuff that I want. But I I don't have anything that I need anymore. Because there was a time when I I needed that next best thing. Because if I didn't have it, I just wasn't going to be happy. But The truth is, God inside of me has finally made me happy. And I recognize that I have what I need in Him. Amen? First Peter 1 Peter 1.23-23, it says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, to the living and enduring word of God. We have been born of an incorruptible seed, a seed which is not perishable, it's imperishable. You see, the thing is, is that that which is born of this world is corruptible. As we just read in 2 Peter 1.4, it says that, the corruption that, is, that there is corruption in this world. But we are born of an incorruptible seed, or rather again, we're born again from a seed, not of a seed which is perishable, but a seed which is imperishable, a seed that is incorruptible. That means that we are made new without blemish. The symptom wasn't treated, but the problem was. But the greatest thing about being born again from an incorruptible seed is that it's going to produce true in your life. It would be kind of like going to the store and and buying a pack of seeds, and the picture on the front is tomatoes, but when you grow it, cucumbers sprout up. I would say that we have a corrupted seed at that point. Or you go to plant it, and instead of nice, rich, healthy tomatoes, you get rotten and small, and that would be a corrupted seed it's not producing true it's not you know it's not producing what it said it would on the front of the bag and i thank god that as christians that we are born from an incorruptible seed an imperishable seed that's going to produce true there is no concern that what is produced in our life from that seed will be lesser or misshapen or malformed because it's incorruptible <clears throat> You know, what I find amazing, too, is is how the scripture starts off. It says, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. You know, obedience to the truth is what gets us to be born from this incorruptible seed. And what what I mean by that is, is that we have purified ourselves by hearing the word of God, but not just by hearing it, but doing it. And I don't mean doing it in the sense of, of living a, the perfect life. It's not the, the things that we've done, but doing, hearing the word and doing it is, means that we have, we have learned about Jesus Christ. We've confessed him as our Lord and Savior. We have confessed Christ with our mouths and believed with our hearts. That's doing the word of God that's purified ourselves because of our obedience to the word of God. You see, if you ever want to live a pure life, you have to live in obedience to the Word of God. You have to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Because how many of you know that you can't live a pure life on the outside if the inside is all, is all malformed and corrupted? And unfortunately, that's how we're born. Unless that's changed, unless we have a new spirit placed inside of us, unless we're redeemed, that's all, that nature is all we can live from. And then we find that this incorruptible seed is the living and enduring Word of God. That seed that we're born from is the Word of God, the one that says, believe in Jesus Christ, confess with your mouth and be saved. The one that says that you are victorious. The one that says that you are an overcomer. The one that says you are brand new and you're made pure. That's the Word of God. And I think... God, that the word of God is something that we can put our faith in, that we can trust. You know, there's been a lot of dumb stuff said by men. And most of the time, I mean, we're going to take a look at some quotes that I, that I was looking up about stuff that men has said, stuff that, you know, as far as they were concerned, it was gospel. A Roman engineer, Julius Sextus, Sextus Frontinus, I suppose is how you pronounce it, in AD 100, so 100 years after, after Christ, it says, inventions have long since reached their limit, and I see no hope for further developments. That's not, that's not a word you can put your faith in, because we know a little bit better nowadays. John Eric Erickson, who was a surgeon to uh, Queen Victoria in 1873, says that the abdom- abdomen, the chest, the brain will forever be shut from the intrusion of the wise and human surgeon. This one's good. Journalist Junius Henry Brown in 1893 said this Law will be simplified over the next century. Lawyers will have diminished and their fees will have been vastly curtailed. <laughs> Albert Einstein's teacher said this to his father, to Einstein's father in, in 1895. He says, It doesn't matter what he does, he will never amount to anything. Scientist John von Neumann in 1949 said, it would appear we have reached the limits of what is possible to achieve with computer technology. (laughs) Secretary of State John Foster Dulles said this in 1954, the Japanese don't make anything the people in the U.S. would want. (laughs) Alex Lewitt, president of Lewitt Vacuum Cleaner Company, on 1955 said, nuclear powered vacuum cleaners will probably be a reality within 10 years. And then Arthur Summerfield said, he was the US Postmaster General under Eisenhower in 1959 said, before man reaches the moon, your mail will be delivered within hours from New York to Australia by guided missiles. We stand on the threshold of rocket mail. Roger Smith, who was the chairman of General Motors in 1986, said this, by the turn of the century, we will live in a paperless society. And then Bob Metclyffe, in 1995, says this, I predict the internet will go spectacularly supernova and in 1996, catastrophically collapse. See, the reason I, I wanted to point some of these things out is because the word of man is flawed. As we've seen in multiple examples, the word of highly respected men, the word of men that, you, that people at this time thought that they could trust, that they could believe what they were saying, we know now it just wasn't true. Not that they were being facetious, not that they, were being, they had uh, evil intent, they were just wrong. But I thank God that our faith is in the word of God that his word is true, that his word is sure, that anything that he says that we can put our faith and our trust in. And that is what we are born again of, the imperishable seed, which is the living and enduring word of God, which we can put faith in, we can trust. Even though the word of man is oftentimes fallible, the word of God never is. So let's get back into 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, it says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, in your knowledge self-control, in your self-control perseverance, in your perseverance godliness, in your godliness brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he says, now for this very reason, and what is that reason? That we were given a divine nature. And for this reason, applying in all diligence, we need to have these qualities in all diligence. Once, we need to operate in faith. He says, in your faith. Because of this divine nature, we are able to operate in faith. And he says then, in your faith, supply moral excellence. You know, we need to be morally excellent people people should be able to look at us and see that there's something different about us. And then in our moral excellence, we need to increase in knowledge. And with our increased knowledge, we need to practice self-control. You see, when it says grow in knowledge, that's spending time in the Word and learning who you are. And the only way that you can grow in self-control is to learn who you really are, to recognize that you're free from those things that are trying to tempt you. And as we grow in that knowledge, it says we can practice self-control. And then right after that, it says in that self-controlling, we need to persevere. How many of you know that even when you have a knowledge of your freedom in Christ and you're practicing self-control, that you're still going to be tempted? You're still going to be pushed. And that's when you need to persevere in those times. Persevere in your holiness and your cleanliness and your freedom. And by persevering, you'll be living a godly life. And in that godly life, it says we're going to practice brotherly kindness and practice brotherly love. These are the qualities of a person who has the divine nature inside of them. And it says, for these qualities are yours and are increasing. How many of you look at some of those and go, wait a minute, some of the, that's not who I am. So I'm not a person who loves, or I'm not a, I, I don't have any willpower. How do I persevere? These things are not me. But the truth is, the the scripture says that these qualities are yours. And not only are they yours, they're increasing. And it has nothing to do with who you are. It has to do with his nature inside of you. When you say, I'm not a person who, who loves other people, you're wrong. If you've got Jesus Christ inside of you, that is who you are. It might require a little bit more faith on your part to push through that block that you have. But the truth is, that is who you are. And then I thank God we find out that because of these qualities inside of us, that we are rendered neither useless nor unf- or unfruitful. I thank God that because of God's power inside of us, that means that we can be fruitful, that we have a purpose, that we are not useless, but we are useful in the kingdom of God. Our ability to work and be impactful for the kingdom of God has nothing to do with our own abilities, nor is it limited by our own shortcomings. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ has given us the tools to be useful and impactful and fruitful in the kingdom of heaven. And it's because of His divine nature inside of us. And 1 Peter 5, 6-10... It says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, the first thing we need to understand, that in Christ, we recognize that without Him, we're weak, we're helpless in this world. And we all know that because how many of you have tried to do the right thing before Jesus? I was, I was helpless and weak to resist the devil because I, I had no power inside of me. I had no strength to do so. But the Bible says that if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he will exalt us at the proper time. In John 15, 5, it says, I am the vine and you are the branches and he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, he can do nothing. If we will humble ourselves and exalt God, He will also exalt us. And to humble ourselves is to recognize our dependence on Him. You see, as we we look back at the last scripture, we say, but these things aren't me. But that's because you're depending on yourself. But if you'll step back and depend on God and His work that is done inside of you, you'll recognize that these things are you. Next, we need to recognize that we need to be alert to the schemes of the enemy. The Bible says be of sober spirit, be on the alert, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. You know, we need, have to understand that we have a new nature inside of us. We're, we're made brand new. There's, like we were talking here, we have that divine nature inside of us because the enemy is, is prowling around ready to attack you. You know, if you don't have a revelation of who you are, a revelation that you've been made brand new, when the enemy comes knocking, it's so easy to slip back in to those old ways. It's so easy to slip back in to the things that we were doing because we don't recognize that that's not who we are anymore. And the truth is, the enemy is going to show up trying to make this stuff look all pretty. The enemy is going to show up and, and try to make you think that these things that, that you used to do, know that really was what made you happy. He's going to make them look enticing and enchanting. Joe Gutierrez tells, uh, tells some stories from his book when he, he worked 42 years as a steel worker. And he says that... Uh, In one of his stories, which he called Snow Danced in August in his book, he describes a scene of silvery dust flakes that frequently floated to the floor in an area of the mill where steel strips rolled over pads and a tall cooling tower. For years, workers and visitors alike flocked to the site, which was especially picturesque at night. But then they discovered the dust was asbestos, and everybody breathed it in. He says he now suffers from slow choking grip of asbestos, as do many plant workers, He says, who am I? I'm everybody. I can't walk too fast. I can't walk too far now. I get tired real fast, and it hurts when I breathe sometimes. And to think we used to fight over that job. How many things in our culture resemble the silver flakes of that steel mill? How many things in our old life resemble those, it looked so good, it was amazing. They they fought over that job because it was so pretty, but in reality, it was ripping them apart on the inside. It was tearing their lungs up. And the same thing happens in our lives as the enemy tries to show you these things that are, you know, he wants to make them out like they're the most fun in the world and it won't harm you at all. But the truth is, the enemy's only goal is to harm you. So how do we resist him? We, we stay sober and alert. We don't be unaware of his schemes. We don't be unaware of what he's trying to do and recognize that there's a new nature inside of us. In 2 Peter 1, 9 through 11, it says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice his things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance to the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You know, a Christian who is lacking these qualities that we were just talking about, the... Of faith and moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love, they're basically a, a person who has forgotten who they are. <clears throat> he says that this person who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. He's, we've forgotten who we are when we when we stop living out of the divine nature. Because if we remember that that's who we are, that's who we would live all the time. We have to understand that these these qualities inside of us are are not a checklist of things that we must do. They're not a checklist of of these are the the things that we have to do to be right with God, but they're a, a natural result, they're an outpouring of the change that he made inside of us. If you're trying to do these on your own, you got it all wrong. But if you let Christ live through you, live inside of you, then you're finally doing the right thing. Not because you're, you're trying to hit a checklist, but because Christ is living through you. It's like the scripture says, it's like a, a man who, who looks in a mirror and as soon as he turns away, he forgets who he is. He forgets what he looks like. And that's what can happen to Christians is they, they forget who they are. They forget that they have a divine nature inside of them. And they begin living the old life that they've lived instead of living with, with the qualities that it was speaking of here. <clears throat> so he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to, be, to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So how can we be certain about his calling of us? Let me just give you a few scriptures that, that talk about your calling and your eternal life in Him. In First John 5:13, it says, "These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you're saved. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13 it says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. You know, it's amazing. A lot of these questions in our lives are answered if we'll just spend time in the Scripture. Does God really want me? Am I really chosen? The Bible says God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. In Ephesians 1, 9 through 12, it says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his entire His kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summoning up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. We've been predestined in Christ. We can be sure of his calling. And then it says, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. See, when we live out of our, our new divine nature, that's how we practice these things. And when we do, we will not stumble. You know, I think, for the most of us, we all concede that Christians still sin. But the truth is, it's entirely possible to live the rest of your life without sin if you will live from that new nature inside of you, that divine nature inside of you, you can live a perfect life. Now, I thank God that if you do slip and you do mess up, the Bible says we still have an advocate to the Father in Jesus Christ. I thank God that even the sins you haven't committed yet are still forgiven. But the truth is, if we would just keep our focus on Him and live out of this divine nature, we can live without stumbling. And I'm way behind. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And Ephesians 2, 1-3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. See, too many times we let ourselves live like who we used to be. But the truth is that we are now children of God, we are sanctified, which means we're set apart, and we are justified, which means we are made righteous. You see, the truth is, what Paul is speaking about in both of these scriptures is that this is who we used to be, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. And down here it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked. See, I want you to, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I need to get moving on, but I want you guys to recognize that living outside of your divine nature is living in who you were. But the truth is that you were washed, you were sanctified. And you were made brand new. And you have a new nature inside of you. You're no longer stuck with this one, where we were by nature children of wrath. That's the old nature that was inside of you, but now you have a new nature inside of you, a divine nature that allows you to live without stumbling, allows you to live not involved in any of these things because that's who you were, not who you are now. Second Peter 1.12-15 says, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already knew them. And I've been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am the earthly dwelling, in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. You know, Peter's saying, basically, I'm not telling you guys nothing you, you don't already know. You've heard this preached before. This morning, I'm not telling you anything that you guys haven't already heard me preach before. And it's funny because I look at this scripture and it brings me great comfort because there are times that I'm, I'm bringing something up and I'm going to preach on I'm like, man, I preached this to death. I'm like, are they really going to want to hear this again? But I'm comforted by this verse because Peter, Peter says that I will always be ready to remind you these things, even though you already know them. And he goes on to say that the reason I will be diligent is that he realizes, he recognizes that his time is coming. He's going to be passing away soon. His time on earth is done. But he wants to make sure that at any time after his departure, that you will be able to call these things to mind. And that's my same goal as well as we minister on these things. I want to be certain and be diligent to know that that even after you leave here on a Sunday morning, that these things are fresh and embedded in your mind, that you can live from the truth of God. And I'll always be ready to remind you of these things. It's kind of like when you raise your children. The, the, the Word says that if you raise your child in the way that he should go, when he grows older, he'll not depart from it. And the same thing goes on for your spiritual children. As you begin to to minister and preach to them stuff that they may already know. But it's so that way that when when you guys leave the room, you'll not depart from it. You'll still have these things to be able to call to mind. And then in 2 Peter 1, 16-18, he goes on to say, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's beginning to say, you know what? He's in a sense defending his apostleship. apostleship. He's defending his right to, to minister these things with authority by saying, that, hey, I was there. You see, he was there when Jesus was transfigured on that mountain. That's what he's talking about right here. And he heard God's voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. He's saying, you know what? What I'm teaching you is based on eyewitness accounts. I walked with Jesus. I was with him. And this is not just some made-up story to make you feel good. And then he goes, I was not the only one not the only eyewitness. How many people know that, that if you're going to make a claim that you weren't the only one to see something, that them being around and alive, if you're telling a lie, is probably not a good idea. But the truth is, at this time, any one of these people being ministered to could have, could have spoken to the people that were there and heard that, yeah, no, he's right. This is true. What we're speaking is true. This, when he's ministering to you about the divine nature you can go ahead and believe him, because he was there. He learned this from Jesus. He was, he was there when, when, the, when the prophetic uh, words of the Old Testament were being manifest. So we look at the last scripture of Second of Peter chapter 1. Says in in verse nineteen, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see, Peter's real experience when he was up on that mountain seeing the prophetic word of God being lived in real life, being, being coming to pass, made the, the experience more real for him It corroborated what the scripture has said. He began to see it with his own eyes. And as he's recognizing that the Word of God is true and that these prophecies are coming to pass, he's saying, you know what? We would do well to pay attention to the Word of God because it is like a lamp. He said, pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. Think of the Word of God as a, as a lighthouse to us, just like, the lighthouse, just like ships use a lighthouse to guide themselves into port. We should use the, the Word of God to guide ourselves in this world. So the truth is, when Jesus comes back, all is going to be illuminated. I just talking about here when the, the morning star rises in our hearts. When, he come, when the morning star comes back, everything will be illuminated. But right now, the world is dark. We live in a dark place. And the Word is the light. To, is our light in this darkness. You see... In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We need to spend time on the Word of God so that way that we can grow in it, that we can, it can be used to, to teach us, to, for reproof and correction, for training. And we need to make sure that we're taking it in context. The last thing he's, he's talking about here is that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men and moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What he's pointing out here is that we need to be careful too that we're not taking the Scripture and twisting it to our own devices. You know, you've probably seen religions out there who will take Scripture and you'll, you'll read it, and what they're trying to, to use it to explain away, or what they're trying to use it to defend, and you're like, yeah, this isn't really what's being said here. And we need to be careful with that. We need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. You can't pick a, pluck out a single Scripture and use it to, to further your own agenda. When elsewhere in the Word of God, it completely contradicts what you're trying to teach. So we're running short on time. Got one a bit longer than I, than I wanted to. So we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. But you know, today I just wanted to take a look at this, this first chapter and recognize that as we're talking about here, the scripture spoke about what is going to happen. If you look through the Old Testament, there's prophecies that talk about being given a heart of, of stone removed and given a new heart of flesh. And, and Peter's been speaking this whole chapter about this new nature that's been put inside of us. And I thank God that we have that new nature. I thank God that we can finally live our lives free from the schemes of the enemy, free from sin. We can, we can live a life without stumbling. And I don't know about you guys, but that's something that I strive to do, not in my own will, but by letting God live through me. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.